Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that every time you speak, something happens. You are a great creator. Father, we pray for for Joshua as he speaks, for Jonah as he speaks, that he might speak your word, not just the written words on the page, but that we might hear you speak to us, and not just hear, but listen intently. So we pray, Father, that your word might go out this morning, and also as um, Steve speaks to us afterwards, we pray too that your word might touch our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so John 4, verses 27 through to 32. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come, see a man who has told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? So they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone else have brought him food? My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say, four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look to the, at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows, another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labour. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the, of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we believe because we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Lord, as we look into this uh, part of your word today, um, we pray that you would draw us um, to see more of your glory and that our hearts may be captivated by your great love, your incredible love for us in Jesus, so that we would come to worship you and you alone and that our hearts may be changed, our lives may be changed for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The passage today has a number of themes in it. But the one I want to highlight particularly is the idea of a rescue mission. As Jane said, this great missionary God, uh, a great rescue story. And of course, we're quite used to rescue stories, aren't we? You know, we watch them on TV, on news, and they have a way of captivating our attention, don't they? Um, To watch the outcome, hopefully a good outcome. And while we, as we watch this uh, rescue mission, uh, unfold on our screens, our tensions can, can rise, can't they? As we see a fellow human being in a dangerous predicament. Maybe they're stuck uh, on a ledge with a, above a great precipice, or maybe they're clinging to a life raft in raging seas. 
Anticipation builds as the rescue chopper approaches and our heart rate might, might jump a bit as the first attempt we watch fails. But finally, after what seems like an eternity, the person is plucked to safety and that feeling of relief comes upon us. Even though we're sitting in front of a TV miles from where it's happening, we feel relieved. We might even shed a tear. It has a way of stirring our emotions because a person's, a human's life has been saved. And I think this whole passage we're going to look at, in fact, all of it, all of chapter 4, this whole Samaritan story, it draws us into the greatest rescue mission of all time. And as we'll see, we're not just observers from afar. Uh, we're very much caught up in the action. So last week we did look at the first half of the story. Uh, it was a fascinating conversation between Jesus and an unnamed Samaritan woman, a moral woman. And Jesus brought her through the conversation to realise her deep thirst for true worship. A thirst she'd been trying to quench with human relationships, with men. And he taught her about true worship of God as Father in spirit and in truth. And that her thirst could only be quenched with Jesus' living water. So her longing, her true longing was for the Messiah, the one who had come to make this true worship possible. And Jesus' final words to her revealed himself to be the Messiah. I am he, he said. And we considered how her story uh, was in many ways our story too, that all people are worshippers. We were all made to worship. But as fallen sinful humans, we're drawn to worship created things rather than God himself. And so we thirst until we come to drink Jesus' living water by faith and are forgiven of our misplaced worship and restored to the true worship we were made for. That's the essence of last week's message. It's helpful for particularly those of you who weren't here. But as we move uh, into our passage today, it's essential, I think, uh, that we bear in mind just how serious this false, misplaced worship is. It's not just a matter of having our own thirst quenched so that we can be satisfied. The Bible teaches that our misplaced worship, that is, having a higher regard for anything else other than God himself, misplaced worship is the core of all sin and it was inherited from our first, from the ancestors, the first uh, humans. And that it causes immense moral and personal offence to God himself. It amounts to a blatant rejection of his gracious rule and holy character. And an affront to his infinite majesty, his glory and his worth. And it rightly leaves fallen humanity under God's condemnation, under his judgment and wrath. There's no other way he can respond. His perfect goodness and holiness and justice demands that sin be punished because the one thing God can't do is to act contrary to his own nature. If he did, we wouldn't be God, would he? And so that leaves all humanity, all of us, in a very serious predicament by default. We're born under condemnation it's the status quo for, for all people. And very importantly, the Apostle John wanted us to have this in mind as we read this story in chapter 4, beginning last week. Because in the previous passage, the one leading straight into this, 
In John 3.18, should be up on the screen, he wrote, Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And his very last words, the very last verse before we come into chapter 4, were, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. So the entire fallen world, every single person, is born and lives in this same predicament under condemnation and wrath. It's not a very pleasant thing to think about, is it? It's not very friendly and nice for us. But whether we're comfortable with it or not, it is the truth. We're all in the same dangerous predicament. We all need to be rescued somehow. That's the bad news. But there's good news, isn't there? There is good news. God, right from the beginning, had a great rescue plan. A mission plan, a plan to save the world that had turned against him, to bring an end to human sin and and its consequences once and for all. It was hinted at right after the first human sin, way back in Genesis 3.15, and you can have a look there sometime, just a hint, a hope. And it became much clearer later in Genesis when God made a promise to a man called Abraham. And God said that to Abraham he was going to make a nation from him And that through his, through Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the earth would one day be blessed. And the entire big story of the Bible reveals a rescue plan, this rescue plan unfolding progressively. So the Bible is much more than history, it's God-directed history. And it tells how God has been sovereignly working in every detail, directing history toward its intended goal, his intended goal a new creation, that is, a rescued, redeemed humanity from every nation of the world who joyfully worship him and him alone while still enjoying the blessings that he loves to lavish on his children. So the entire Old Testament, with its promises, prophecies, shadows and types, anticipates a future fulfilment. And the entire New Testament claims that these are all fulfilled in and through one man, the divine human Son of God, Jesus, the Messiah, God's promised Saviour and King. So God, God's greatest, his rescue plan, this great mission plan, this rescue plan needed someone to go down into the danger zone. So at the perfectly planned time, God sent his own Son into the darkness of the world he'd made. That's how John began his Gospel, remember? A few weeks back. The eternal word of God, through whom the world was made, became flesh, became human and dwelt among us. God's great saviour had arrived. Into the bleak darkness of human sin came a shining light. Into a world condemned to eternal death came life in person. And whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life as children. Born not of flesh, but born of the Spirit. Born again, that's what we've been learning in John's Gospel. And here in chapter 4, we can see this rescue plan unfolding. The ultimate rescue mission. And it unfolds according to the predetermined plan of God. 
All these events, including Jesus' travel plans and his ministry, are planned and intentional by a divine plan. So if you've got your Bibles there, it's helpful to have them open to John 4 as we look at today's passage together. But before we do that, there's two indicators of this divine plan in the opening verses of, of this whole passage in, verse, in verses 1 to 4. And I intentionally um, bypassed them last week because I wanted to quickly have a look this week as we set the scene for the passage we're in. So have a look from verse 1, where John began by saying that when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptising more disciples than John, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Because he heard that they knew about him, he left. Why did he do that? Why did he leave? Was he scared of them? Was he running away because he thought they might attack him or maybe even kill him? No, of course not. He says, he will come to say in John 10, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. So it's obviously not fear that drives him to leave Judea. He leaves because of the predetermined plan of God. And according to that plan, his overshadowing of John the Baptist indicates that it's now time for some rescuing work back in Galilee. So off they go. Verse 4 raises a second question. Now he had to go through Samaria, it says. John tells us. And that raises a question because although Samaria lay directly between Judea, below it, and Galilee, above it to the north, it raises a question because there was certainly more than one way to get there. Uh, as we heard last week, Jews despised Samaritans. They hated them. They saw them as unclean ethnic half-castes and religious heretics. And because of this, there were well-used routes, very well-used routes, to avoid Samaria entirely. And many, used, many Jews used them. So while the shortest route was certainly straight through Samaria, John writes Jesus had to go through Samaria. So if he didn't have to, because of geographic constraints, it was for another reason. And it seems to indicate divine intent, that his movements are according to God's rescue plan. He had to go through Samaria because unlike the Jews, God loves Samaritans. And he had to go to Samaria for one thirsty, sinful Samaritan woman. And he had to go so that by means of that one woman, he could save many Samaritans. So let's pick up the story in our passage. We'll just backtrack two verses to 25 to build context. To verse 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. To which Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Verse 27. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? The sudden return of the disciples brought an abrupt end to Jesus' conversation with the woman. But the timing of their return seems rather perfect, doesn't it? I mean, it's probably just a coincidence. No, I don't think so. It's no accident that the last thing she hears from Jesus is the truth of who he is. 
The disciples, well, it says there, they're surprised that he's talking with a woman because that was completely unacceptable for Jews, especially for rabbis. But out of respect for him, no, no one, they didn't ask him about it and question him. Besides, they were often surprised by Jesus. He didn't exactly abide by cultural norms of the day. And the woman, perhaps uncomfortable with the sudden influx of Jewish men, or maybe just excited about what Jesus had just told her, well, she takes off to town. Verse 28. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Now up to this point, Jesus, well, he hasn't had the drink that he originally asked for. We remember last week, he asked the woman for a drink. So did she leave the water jar so he could have a drink? Maybe. It's even possible that she'd already drawn the water when Jesus had first asked her for a drink. I mean, that'd, that'd make sense. If she's in a hurry to go and plans to return with some other people from town, well, well why not leave it for all the men to have a drink? Of course, we can't be sure of any of that. There's one more possible reason why John mentions it. Perhaps at a deeper level, leaving the jar demonstrated that her thirst had been quenched by Jesus' living water. Maybe. But she does go. And it does seem, to me at least, she's in quite a hurry. I think she's genuinely excited that the man she met might just be the long-awaited Messiah that he claimed to be. But the way she tells the people in town kind of leaves us wondering. She's convinced that Jesus is at least a prophet. He knows everything about her. She even said so back in verse 19. And so on the basis that he knew everything about her, she poses this question to the people in town. Come see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? The fact that she's still asking a question means she's either not yet convinced or she's intentionally trying to draw them out to decide for themselves. Again, we can't be sure. But draw them out, she does. And the picture painted here in verse 30 is important to have in our minds as we continue through the passage. They came out of town, out of the town, and made their way toward him. Just keep that in mind. Last week in um, verse 8, we were told the disciples had left um, Jesus by the well and gone to buy, um, get some food. They've bought some food in town and now they've come back. They've returned. They're all busy eating, except Jesus. So verse 31, Meanwhile his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him some food? Now there's no doubt Jesus is hungry. I mean, he is fully human. He's tired, the text told us last week. He's thirsty, he's asked for a drink. He's no doubt hungry. But Jesus has something far more important on his mind. The disciples' response shows that they're thinking purely in a physical way, that someone must have brought him some food or he had some muesli bars tucked away, I don't know. But just like the woman in the previous conversation about water and Nicodemus in chapter 3 about being born again, well, the disciples have no idea that he's talking about food of an entirely different nature. Food, as Jesus says there, they, you know nothing about. But unlike the other two conversations, Jesus now explains exactly what food he's talking about. 
Verse 34, my food, says Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So this is a key verse and we need to unpack it for a moment. Jesus is telling them that he gains spiritual sustenance by doing the will of the one who sent him. So whether the disciples understood it or not, we know, of course, that Jesus was sent by his father. John repeats it again and again in his gospel. And we also know what God's will for sending him was. We already uh, looked at both in uh, John 3.17. It's up there again. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So God, the great rescue planner, sent his son into an already condemned world in order to save it. And Jesus' food, he says, is to accomplish that to the last detail according to the rescue plan. The plan that God had been working on from the very beginning, that he'd promised and foreshadowed right through the Old Testament scriptures. And now Jesus says at the end of verse 34 that he's come to finish God's work and that that is his food. He goes on in verse 35, Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. The saying that he quotes was most likely used in the time immediately following the sowing of grain seed. And it refers to the delay, the minimum delay, until harvest, no less than four months. But Jesus tells the disciples to open their eyes and look at the fields because they are now ripe for harvest. So what did they do next? Did they, did they scan the surrounding paddocks looking for ripe heads of wheat or, or barley or something? They probably did. Now, I would have. But of course it should come as no surprise that Jesus is talking, he's using metaphors again to explain something spiritual and profound using the imagery of physical things. By saying it, he implies that seed has been sown and that the crop is ripe now and ready to be reaped. Verse 36, even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labour. So according to Jesus, some seeds been sown and the crops now ripe with no delay. It's already being harvested. A crop for eternal life is bearing wages right now. And though, he says, as the hard work has been done by others, the disciples, the reapers, he says, they get to benefit from the labour. And the sower and the reaper can rejoice together in the great harvest. So what do we make of all this? The most likely possibility, I think, goes something like this. Jesus, the sower, sowed the seed of the gospel in the heart of the woman when he declared himself to be Messiah. And the gospel seed has been carried into town and sown in the hearts of many more Samaritans who have now left the town and are coming towards Jesus. Remember verse 30. This was happening at the very same time Jesus was talking to his disciples, as John makes clear at the very start of verse 31. 
So when Jesus told the disciples to open their eyes and look to the fields that are ripe for harvest, they were supposed to see a stream of Samaritans coming towards them. There was no four-month delay between sowing and reaping. And though the disciples had not done the hard work, they could reap the benefits of Jesus' labour and of God's work through the ages. The sower and reapers could rejoice together in a great harvest of Samaritans, a crop for eternal life. God's rescue plan to save people from all nations and all the world includes Samaritans. And here in John 4, we begin to see the fulfilment of God's promises to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through his offspring, not just the one nation, Israel. And the offspring, of course, as the New Testament makes clear, is Jesus. The offspring is Jesus, the Jew, descended from Abraham, come to fulfil the blessings. The Old and Testament prophets, they also foretold these days. Have a look at this just one I, I, I picked out from Isaiah 55. Might ring a few bells for you who were here last week. Come all you, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. Give ear and come to me, listen, that you may live. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendour. Now, does that have any echoes through this passage or what? It really does. Well, the remaining four verses, I think, confirm our harvest interpretation, and, but they describe in plain language uh, a great harvest of Samaritan souls for eternal life, and it concludes with a stunning confession by the Samaritan townspeople. Verse 39, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Though her faith was perhaps a bit uncertain. The woman's testimony led many to believe in Jesus at some level. But listening to Jesus' own words for two days led many more from the town to firm faith in him. So the collective answer of the townspeople to the woman's question was a resounding yes. The Jewish man that she'd met at the well was indeed God's promised Messiah. The saviour of the world had come. And he'd come to save them, to save Samaritans, to rescue them from their dangerous predicament. It's a brilliant story. Brilliant story. Of course, at that point in time, Jesus' saving work wasn't yet finished. You know, he told back in verse 34 that his food was to do the will of his Father and finish his work. But as he later hung on the Roman cross, Bearing the sin of the world upon himself, John writes in chapter 19, the final words Jesus uttered were, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus, the saviour of the world, 
brought the greatest rescue mission of all time to completion. On the cross, the divine human Son of God, sent from the Father, became a sacrificial lamb. He bore the condemnation, the judgment and the wrath of a holy and just God. He willingly lay down his life as a substitute in the place of sinful, rebellious humanity, people like you and me, and in the place of Samaritans, Jews and all nations, every person on this earth. It was the only way that a God who is both just, loving, at the same time that he could obliterate sin and its consequences without obliterating us sinners. What kind of love is that? That is great love. There's no greater love anywhere in this universe. God so loved this sinful world, you and I, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That is amazing love. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Sorry, it is, mate. makes me a bit a little emotional. It's amazing. Do you know this love? Do you? Have you come to know and believe that Jesus is your saviour? Your Messiah? If not, please believe him today. Entrust yourself to him, the one who gave his life to rescue you from your terrible predicament. If you do know this love already, this amazing love of God, then rejoice in it. And rejoice in him, in God your Father. Rejoice in Jesus, your rescuing hero and Saviour and Lord. And through his word, grow in knowledge of that love. But let's not keep this message of love to ourselves, this good news. Millions, millions have never heard it. The great rescue plan of God is anchored in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. But the work continues for us, for his children. The great plan for blessing to all nations continues to unfold as the gospel is proclaimed and spread far and wide. As the good news of Jesus and his finished work on the cross is told. And so just like the Samaritan woman with her shaky faith, we're called to sow the gospel seed into this nation, into this community, so that sower and reaper can rejoice together in a great eternal harvest here on the south coast. Let me pray. Father God, words cannot really describe your love to us. With our puny little human brains, we can barely comprehend how great an offence our false worship and our sin have caused you. And just how great this love is that you, a perfect, infinitely holy and righteous and just, majestic and glorious God, far above us and beyond us, would send your Son to become a man like us and to take our place and bear the condemnation and wrath that we deserve
so that we can be adopted as children of you and call you Father and be with you for eternity, forever and ever in a new heavens and a new earth. That is mind-blowing. We pray that by your Spirit you would open us, open our eyes to see the truth, a truth that is unseen but yet you choose to reveal it by your Spirit and through your Word. Lord, change us, change us deeply. Change our hearts and cause us to worship you and you alone and not the things that you've made, the good things that we can enjoy. Help us to always acknowledge and thank you for them. So we rejoice in your love. We pray that you would um, help us to know it more and more, but also cause us to see how desperately important it is that we sow the seed of the gospel to this community that you've placed us in. We pray all these things and we thank you again. In Jesus' glorious name, amen.